That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Jeff Passan, and my dilemma is I get sunburned way too easily. May I ask your uh, ethnicity or racial background? I am an Eastern European Jew, so I think that there's definitely something in the lineage, but there's also the, the stupidity element. (laughs) <laughs> which is that I don't put on sunscreen particularly well, apparently. Like, this isn't a great dilemma because it seems to be easily solvable. But let me, <laughs> like, there's another element to this dilemma. And that element is that the kind of sunscreen I need not to get sunburned is the sort that is so white that it makes me look like extra Casper the Friendly Ghostish. And at the pool yesterday... Somebody pointed out to me, God, you look even whiter than usual. And that was kind of embarrassing. So, Sarah Spain, solver of problems, how do I get around this issue of looking even whiter than I do already? Okay, so the dilemma is really just you don't like how you look in sunscreen. Yes, correct. Well, this is the first time a dilemma has ever been solved en route to discovering another dilemma. Of course, sunscreen is the answer to the initial dilemma, or maybe a hat or a towel, or just don't go outside. As for the second, being embarrassed about how you look in sunscreen, one, I'm certain there are high-powered, top-of-the-line sunscreens that don't turn you into Casper the Ghost. You just need to look a little bit harder. And two, even if you do look like Casper the Ghost, that embarrassment is far less of a problem than skin cancer. So I suppose my solution is, don't be a moron, use sunscreen. Or just don't be a moron in general. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Jeff Passan, senior MLB insider for ESPN. He regularly appears on SportsCenter, Baseball Tonight, and a variety of ESPN radio shows. Also a New York Times bestselling author. And that dilemma gives you a little tease into the episode, which is equally long-winded, winding, and quirky, uh, but fantastic. We talk about how Passan was working the Indians clubhouse by the time he was 15, how growing up a Cleveland sports fan made him who he is and sort of affected his life view. Uh, some tales of fake IDs, gluten-related bachelor party emergencies, and uh, stay all the way to the end for the senior prank story that he tells. It's a good one. I hope you like it. That's what she said. So happy to have Jeff Passan on the pod. And one thing I love about doing these podcasts is really getting to know people, especially people that I work with. And I would say that for years at Yahoo Sports, I just thought of Jeff as this baseball guy, very serious baseball guy. And coming to ESPN allowed a lot of us to get to know him a little better and realize that there's a nice personality there behind the stories and the, and the breaking news and all that stuff. Uh, and so we're going to get into some of that today. But we got to start at the very beginning. Cleveland, Ohio. What area of Cleveland did you grow up in? Are you familiar with Cleveland? Well, I was born in Cleveland. I had no idea. I know. How most about people, that? Most See, people don't know. get to yeah. know one another here. Uh, <laughs> Solon, which is the east side of Cleveland. Okay. I was born in the, uh, well, Cuyahoga County Hospital, but the area was uh, Chagrin Falls, Shaker Heights. Okay. So those two definitely are not really that close to one another. And you oh, mispronounced okay. Cuyahoga. So your Cleveland knowledge. How uh, do you say it? Were you born in Cleveland and then they just shipped you out somewhere else? Yeah, basically, yes. They, I was born there and then they were like, 
you know what? You deserve better than this sports wise. You deserve <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> and they got me they got me to Chicago in time for Michael Jordan. Technically in time for the Bears Super Bowl, but I was too young to appreciate it. But uh yeah, I mean thankfully my parents hightailed it right over to Chicago and allowed me the joy of rooting for the teams that I do instead of the Cleveland teams. You know, it's really interesting how fundamental where you grow up, if you're a sports fan, is to your life and your perspective on life. I, and I your happiness. Truly, <laughs> yeah, no, I truly believe this, though, that, that people's outlooks on life dovetail with their sporting and rooting interests. And that it is so deeply ingrained in you if you're a sports fan that it's that part of your identity you just can't shake. I am like, this is the God's honest truth. And it's really weird to, to say because sports is like my life and my livelihood and my my job. I don't root for teams anymore. I do not root for any teams anymore because growing up in Cleveland and having my heart broken as many times as I did, I realized as I got older and as time went on, it wasn't worth it anymore. Like there's so many other things in life. But that's common in our industry, even in people not from Cleveland. So it might just be, you know, the sort of disillusionment of covering it. Yeah, but that's the thing. I still love the games and I still love the people and I still love everything about it. I just, you know, I'm married and I have kids and I have stressors in life and I did not want sports to be one of them anymore. <laughs> so so I, is it so actually protecting look, your kids? Uh, well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, you can't, like, tell your kids who to root for or, or what to like, right? Like, I don't feel like that's fair. And I mean, so you can try, though. I, My sister's I, actively I, trying to do so against her husband. She's an Eagles fan. He's a Pats fan. She's a Cubs fan. He's a Red Sox fan. So, like, I'm doing ant duty by just buying all the gear for Chicago teams and hoping it works. You know, that's not a bad idea just to like <laughs> weasel in there and yeah. try and be try and be switzerland i like that my son's aunt has been trying to get them to be bears fans for a long time now but we live in kansas city and and we're about to enter year two of the greatest quarterback right. prospect in how long yeah like Growing up in Kansas City right now is going to be really interesting for every child here. How old are your kids? 11 and 7. And the 7-year-old really is not into sports very much. But I almost feel like you're going to have to be to be part of the social conversation and the social fabric of living in Kansas City. Because you know every single Monday, except the ones where they're playing on Monday Night Football, is going to be dominated with, okay, what did Patrick Mahomes do yesterday? Yeah, and I and mean, if you're not be a conversant in that language, it's yeah. going to be, you're going to feel like an outsider. It's going to be a great time if, if the kids just get on board with it. It might be, it might be something that's a little alienating if not, but I get the feeling, even if you want them to avoid the, the pain and heartbreak that comes with sports, you're not going to be able to help it. It's just a part of it. Oh, it's just, no, and at least no you moved to Kansas whatsoever. City. You're not in Cleveland anymore, which is good. <laughs> wow. I mean, I feel bad. My apologies to Cleveland people. The Browns look great. It's going to be a fun season. I'm just saying. Hold, that- hold on a second. Hold on a second. You cannot do what you just did and drop a my apologies to Cleveland people. I can. You have spent, 
you've spent the better part just because you're the host of this podcast doesn't mean you could spend the better part of five minutes taking a shot at a city oh, I just, and then say, oh, my bad. I disagree. I think that's exactly the kind of privilege that I get to enjoy because I am the host of this <laughs> podcast. I think that's exactly how it works. Also, because again, I'm, I'm happy for them that they seem to be ushering a potentially a new era of Browns football. I'm just saying that if we're going based on the year that I was born and the time I got to grow up in, no one in their right mind would choose Cleveland over Chicago. So that's it. There's no argument there. And anyway, back to you. You're growing up in Cleveland. You went to Solon High School. Were you, when you were a kid, just from the very beginning, die hard for all the teams there? Yeah, I was. Because my dad worked at the Plain Dealer, uh, which is the newspaper in town. And he hosted radio on the weekends. And so I was kind of like indoctrinated into sports from a very young age and into the business too. And I had a different perspective on it than most people did because I could see it up close and in person. And I think it it really was what made me who I am now. You know, I knew like I was not a terrible athlete by any means, but I knew I wasn't going to be going anywhere. So when I was, by the time I was like 14 years old, I knew what I wanted to do. And I was going out and like covering like AVP volleyball downtown, nice. like beach volleyball. They In set Cleveland, that up. I was covering that for the local paper. I think I, I went into the Indians clubhouse when I was like 15 or 16 and did a big story on Omar Vizquel for my high school paper. So wow. Yeah, I knew very early on what I wanted to do and and was very lucky to uh to get to do it. So yeah, you mentioned your father uh was working um in a couple different parts of the paper at one point in the sports department and that when you were 14 you got an internship at the News Herald which was a smaller local newspaper um and you were covering high school games, right? Yeah, I was doing high school. That that place was so awesome because this is fast forwarding a couple of years, but when I would come back on winter break, they would pay me like 30 bucks a pop to cover high school basketball games. And the fact that I could go back with money to college and support my love of beer was great. <laughs> like that money, like stringing high school games got me through the year and, and was just huge. And then you started doing some freelance for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, even while in high school. Yeah, I, uh, you know, they're like the, you'll, you'll truly appreciate this story. And I'd like to, I'd like to hope this serves as a parable for others in <laughs> terms of how one can grow and mature and realize the error of his ways and gets absolutely everything he deserves for, for what happened. So this <laughs> is in college. And I'm talking with a girl at a party and I feel like it's going really well. And it turns out that she's from Cleveland and we're talking about, you know, Hey, yeah, yeah. I wrote for the plane dealer for the teen section there. I was like, yeah, I wrote this one story way back in the day and it got a lot of response. And this was when I was like a junior in high school, I think. So you're trying to like get and, some street cred with this chick. Like you're trying to you're trying to impress her. Yeah, and clearly the fact that we're talking about journalism shows the minimalistic yeah. game that I no, had and I'm sure you were crushing it. Still have. The editor wanted a point counterpoint 
about women's sports. And I was asked to write the counterpoint. And I wrote just this absolutely terrible piece on why women's sports aren't as good as men's sports. And I've gone back and I've looked at it and I'm embarrassed that my name is on top of it. And I'm so glad that it was when I was 16 years old and not like, you know, some of the people who do it as adults. But this girl was on a team that wrote a letter to me. This was back like early in the days of email. JPass99 at AOL.com talking about how awful I was. She's like, that was you who wrote the story? Oh, my God. I was like, yeah. And she literally (laughs) turned her back and walked right away from me. And what was going to be a glorious night went to piss in a matter of seconds because of what I had written. And you know what? Totally, totally deserved it. Karma paid its way back five years later. And, uh, yeah, definitely regret that one. That was a very quick she, karmic retribution. Usually it takes much longer, but you learned I don't know. Five years, come is back. Like, that's a, <laughs> five years is a pretty good slow play. I feel like karma comes back. Sometimes, you know, someone does something stupid and then, like, spills something on themselves. See, like, all of us have those moments. <laughs> no, this one this one was like a long con that, that absolutely nailed me. Yeah, so you're writing at a very young age, which allows for some of those missteps and or things that you've evolved on, which is allowed. Everyone's allowed to grow up and, and mature. It's, it's the people who don't that are the problem. Uh, but you're covering all this stuff. And were you still playing sports? just not as well as you had hoped or had you, had you decided to just focus on the writing? I played tennis, uh, all the way. I probably could have played like small college, but I didn't want to go to a small college. (laughs) I, I, I knew the future was going to be writing about this stuff. So I wanted to write about interesting teams and cover big games. And that's, uh, where Syracuse came along. Yeah, so you had a couple choices, but Syracuse is obviously a great journalism program and a place where you can kind of approach, you know, big-time sports and start covering them right off the bat. And you, you attempted to do so on the very first day of school because you, my friend, are a world-class nerd. And I appreciate that because that's very much my style as well. But explain how you spent your very first day at college. My first day at college, uh, my parents and I went up to 744 Ostrom Avenue. 744 Ostrom Avenue is the address for the Daily Orange newspaper. It's an old ramshackle house. Uh, When you go up the steps, they don't just creak, they wobble, and you (laughs) think you're probably going to break through them. And once you get, I think they've changed the offices around a little, but once you get to the top of the steps, you hook a left, and the sports office is there. And I went in and I wanted to talk with a sports editor who was a guy named Pete Thamel. And Pete Thamel, I imagine a lot of people listening know who he is now. He's a great columnist at Yahoo Sports. And Pete was a senior. And I was the freshman who looked like he was 12 years old. And my voice was probably cracking still. Still kind of do, which is good when you get a little bit older. It's nice to look like a 12-year-old when you're almost 40. (laughs) You have the same affliction. Don't don't just be like... Oh, that's very nice of you. I don't know. Stu got said the other day, how is Sarah on 40 under 40? She's over 40. Thank you, Stu. I'm not. Thank you very much. Thank you. He did not. <laughs> he absolutely did. 
Man, Stu's just angry because he looks weathered. Um, okay, so, uh, so you yeah, look like went a 12-year-old. Yeah. And said, I want to work for you. And uh, he assigned me to my first, it's funny, my first three stories. My first story that I did was on a soccer player named Patrice Bernier, who ended up, I believe, playing for the Olympic team in Canada. My second one was on the Syracuse women's tennis team, in particular a girl named Michelle Nevaklovska. And sports, eh? there was this there was this <laughs> huge it was called a derecho. Have you ever heard of a derecho? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. This monster derecho on the Syracuse campus and the school shut down for a day for weather for the first time in decades, which was insane because Syracuse, you get, you know, two feet of snow. They don't shut down the school. But, yeah, uh, the, the tennis team had, like, a match postponed, so I needed to write a feature on Michelle Nevaklovska. And the third was on a freshman football player at Syracuse, defensive end who was from Connecticut, and uh, the story was about how he was a soccer goalie in high school, but he felt like he had a lot of football potential, and his name was Dwight Freeney. Oh, Wow. That's very cool. So right off the bat, you're covering some pretty big time people that you don't you don't necessarily get know, but you know an Olympian and an NFL player. And so you're writing there, and you became the sports editor for two semesters, and then the managing editor your senior year. So this was obviously something that you took to immediately. And when you decided what you wanted to do at age 14, going to Syracuse and actually doing it only buoyed that belief. There wasn't any doubt when you started actually doing it on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I knew, you know, it was interesting. I was always a math person growing up. Like yeah. I always was, I, I scored like 130 people. points, yeah. 130 points higher on the SAT in math than I did in verbal. And wow. uh, yeah, I probably should have done something with math, to be honest, because I think I'm just better at it naturally. But I love the idea of being around sports and I grew to love the idea of journalism and storytelling and the power that it carries and, and not power in a like game of Thrones succession sense, not power. Like I get to hold it, but power in its capacity to affect lives and bring out emotions in people and really stir hearts and hold people accountable too. I mean, that, that to me is, is what, journalism is all about it's somebody's ability to separate him or herself from these institutions that are there and make sure that when you're writing about them when you're talking about them that that the levers of power are being used for good and over time I think I learned how to do that back when I was in college I just wanted to be like Gary Smith and tell really pretty stories and write really well and turn phrases but as time went on, the reporting element of things really like that's the part that I gravitate toward as much as anything now, not because I don't love writing because I really do, but because the reporting stuff is, is even more fulfilling, I think, than the writing. I feel like anybody can really teach themselves to write well, but the reporting side of things, which I didn't get back in college so much about relationships and so much about asking the right questions and noticing the right details. That's the kind of thing that I think is a great separator and is really difficult to learn. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. 
Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So you're at Syracuse. You're doing all sorts of internships throughout your time there. Baseball Weekly, Buffalo News, New York Star Ledger. Did you have fun in college, Jeff? Did you make friends? I had a great time in college. Those were all during the summer. I'm just thinking of, you know, between the editing and the internships in the summer, like, did you blow off some steam? We had a great time. We, uh, you know, newspaper parties, don't get me wrong. Like, I was never in a frat, but our newspaper parties turned out to be quite spectacular, actually. (laughs) Thamel, I think, is the one who started uh, the second part of this. But the first part, we had something called the Race for the Cases. And every week during the college football season, everyone on staff would pick five games a week against the spread. And at the end of the year, whoever had the best record hosted a party where everybody else brought a case of beer. And, And Race for the Cases turned out to be so successful that it evolved into Battle for the Bottles, which was a... Same thing with college basketball, only you had like 20 bottles of liquor coming to a party. So, nice. yes, Sarah Spain, my, the, the one hindrance I had in college in terms of, of having an enjoyable time was I was the, I don't know if I was the youngest person in my class, but I'm a September birthday and my parents pushed me ahead. So I was in kindergarten when I was four. I was the last one to drive. I was the Ditto. last one. Yeah. You know, I was the last one to Not turn 21. Not 21 until you're a senior. Correct. Exactly. Yep. Ditto. And so that forces you to get fake IDs. And fake IDs are always a very tricky proposition. <laughs> and it was in West Virginia with, uh, I'm going to name drop again, we, we had quite the mafia at Syracuse. And I'm sure you've, you've read Greg Bishop at Sports Illustrated. And Bish was like my running buddy. You know, say we were in the same class, we got to the DO right around the same time, and we were covering a game in West Virginia. I think it was our junior year. And we went out afterward, and Greg was Greg's a September birthday, too. He's September 28th, and he was almost a full year older than me, so he was drinking legally, and I was drinking on just this absolutely terrible fake ID. And the bar we're in gets raided. Uh-huh. And I've had enough beer at that point to make bad decisions. <laughs> and the bad decision is this. When the policeman says to you, Son, can I see your ID? Going through my head, I think, okay, do I give him the real one or do I give him the fake one? What's the bad decision in this situation, Sarah Spain? 
giving him the fake one because it's two crimes. That would be correct. And of course, <laughs> I gave him the fake one. And he looks at me and he cocks his head and he says, boy, do you think I'm a f***ing retard? Uh-oh. And he hands it back to me and cuffs me and takes me off. And I only got cited for like minor in possession. So he did not turn the fake ID on me. But that was not the, the finest moment, getting hauled off in West Virginia. And, and the best part is that Bishop is standing about 10 feet from me, pointing at me and laughing at me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my first he fake that I borrowed said that I was 5'2", I weighed 115. I, it was a fake and it wasn't my picture. And they were like, cool, go ahead. And like, oh, okay. You know what? I had, I had another one of those. This was another ID. This was from my friend Max. And I looked nothing like Max at all, but it was, it was a real ID and we got to the bar and it was my friend Eric's 21st birthday and we were super excited. Greg was there for that. And we handed uh, our IDs to the waitress and she handed it back to me and she said, you know, I'm in a class with Max, right? Oh no. I was like, <laughs> I was like oh. We all have those stories of, you know, the bar you went to a million times as one person and got to know the guy at the door. And then you finally show up as yourself and you're, oh, huh. oh, yeah. Hey, hey, hey Susan, your name is uh, not Jonathan Cromwell? Yeah, exactly. I have a friend who went to the DMV and pretended to be her sister and got a real one and then told the person that she couldn't change the picture because she had lost a little bit of weight and, you know, looked a little different, got her hair done, wanted to have a record of what she used to look like, and the guy bought it. And that friend is definitely not me moving on. I think it's a felony. So you had wow. fun, by the way. Kids, if That's you're listening. dumber than giving a fake. <laughs> you're, wow. I said you're it was a friend. A I don't real, have any other details. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying you, but somebody who may or may not resemble you is actively going and committing fraud with a real government ID. That's what I heard. It was a crazy story. That girl um, is, boy, yeah. is anyway. there a statute of limitations on that? I don't know. We should ask her, my friend. She's probably <laughs> found out. I'll give her a call after <laughs> Um, oh, by the way, if you're listening to this, uh, me asking if he had fun and then him responding with every drinking story does not mean you have to drink a lot in college to have fun, kids. There are plenty of ways. Oh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, uh, so, so you say that. I just want to make sure, though, for all the other listeners out here, so you're not painting me as the giant booze hound here. What exactly were you referring to? Having fun in college. I was referring to that a little bit, but also just, you know, making friends, doing activities, things outside of writing. But I did mean also, I, uh, you know, that stuff, you too. Know, I, I, will, you know. I will say this. You know, you know what? You know what? Like one of the most enjoyable things in life is it's when you get friends together from different groups of people, oh, yeah. whether it's like for, for me, sure. if it's journalism friends, high school friends, just like random adult friends. When you get them together in that group meshes, there is no greater feeling in the world than, yeah, than having absolutely. not just being like the center of it, but knowing that you were able to. It's almost like cooking. You're able to put the right mixture yeah. of ingredients together and something delicious comes out. Uh, my 20 person bachelorette party that was high school, college, work, you know, friends from sports, all this different stuff, and not a single fight. Everyone loved each other. Everyone wants to go back. That was yep. perhaps my crowning achievement in life. 20 women, yep. one house. Um, 
like five bedrooms. Yeah, it was uh, it, where, it's a Where'd you guys go? Uh, Napa. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it was a good time. My bachelor party was in New Orleans. I think it was pretty soon after Katrina. Oh, and wow. we had everybody of all manners and variety. One friend got booted out of, uh, he will go nameless because people will know who he is, got booted out of the penthouse club for peeing in a closet. Another oh, wow. friend who works at ESPN, he will be named here because I need to shame him for this. Mike Rothstein, who covers the Detroit Lions for ESPN. Rothstein has a gluten intolerance. It's not like an actual, (laughs) it's an actual gluten issue. Right. um, As opposed to people who just don't eat gluten. He's celiac probably. Yes, he is totally celiac. Yes. And it's five o'clock in the morning and it's me Rothstein and my buddy Mike Oz from Yahoo, who I've I've known dating back to my first job in Fresno, and we're at the Crystal Burger, and Rothstein at five o'clock in the morning has the temerity to order a burger with no bun in New Orleans. Oh boy! <laughs> and, and oh boy! And the like the look on the woman's face, who's at the counter. She's so offended by this and so taken aback that she looks at him and then looks back at the cook and then looks at him and then looks back at the cook and then says, this N-word doesn't want no bun. (laughs) And if you've ever seen (laughs) Microsoft, he is even whiter than I am. And so hearing her say this, with Rothstein and just giving him the most shit she possibly can for not wanting a bun. That was the crowning achievement Love of it. my bachelor party. Love it. Uh, a friend of mine didn't get married till early 50s, decided to have his big bachelor blowout after all that time in New Orleans. And they're on the flight and a guy turns next to him and says, so y'all going for Southern decadence? Uh, which, as it turns out, <laughs> is the biggest gay party weekend in New Orleans, which they're fine with it, but they were like, well, uh, strip clubs were real empty, and uh, we didn't have any trouble getting into most of the bars. Uh, it's yeah. Southern Decadence? Southern Decadence. That's they started to look around the flight. There was a lot of bears, is all I'm saying, not Chicago bears. That, and uh, several of the several of the group are bears themselves, so they they were very popular. They had a, <laughs> they had a great time. Uh, it just they had not checked the schedule before deciding on that weekend. So uh, I mean, I, even if you had checked the schedule, is this the sort of thing that's going to come up? You see, uh, you see southern, you see southern decadence, like. If I saw Southern Decadence, I'd be like, oh, food festival. Oh, that sounds town. great. Be great. Yeah. Yeah. Just about 300,000 LGBTQ people. So. <laughs> Honestly, you know what? That would be like the A best blast. party, right? Oh, my God. It would be the best. It would be the most fun for sure. I just don't know that that's what a bunch of 50-year-old dudes had, had in mind when they were like, let's finally do it. We're finally sending him off into the, the life of the married guys. Um Man, we are nailing the tangents in this episode. Like we, we really are. It's, it's good I stuff. mean, you you kind of knew, didn't you? <laughs> I had a feeling, to be honest. I did. It's probably going to have to just be a two parter. We'll catch up with you again. We'll get to the second half of life. Um, <laughs> all right. So at this point, you're still in college. We have not gotten past that yet. Um, after all those internships, your first internship post college was at the Washington Post. 
did you want to at the time do news or sports or like had you really nailed down what you wanted to focus on? I knew I wanted to do sports. And like the best thing that happened to me was at the Washington Post. I had up until that point and have since really lived like a very charmed life. I've had things very easy and I recognize that. And I work hard and I give a shit and I try to treat people the right way, you know, all those things. But still, like a lot of things have to go your way. And very rarely, like, did I get rejection? But at the end of the summer at the Washington Post, I wanted to stick around there. And they said, you know, the sports editor at the time said, we don't feel like you're you're good enough to work here. Wow. And that was, you know, it sucked at the time. But ultimately, I think it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. Because we all need that voice telling us we're not good enough just so we can show that we're good enough. And still, I, I feel like it was based on one story. And do you remember Alan Webb? He was like a, like a middle distance runner. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Alan Webb, at the time, I was assigned to do a story on him. He was from suburban Virginia. And I had no relationship with him or anything like that. He had no reason to tell me anything. And so we ran a story about him. And like, I think a day later, he announced he was going pro. And so the Post had a story about Alan Webb without him going pro. And then he went pro. And mm. it's the Washington Post. So, it's, I mean, you can argue it's the best paper in the United States right now and, and had that reputation back then. And uh, I think the fact that I missed really, like, uh, I think people looked down upon me for that. And I get it. It was a total miss. And if that's why I didn't get a job covering high school sports there, then I'm okay with that. Cause I ended up in probably what was, uh, what was a better situation ultimately. Yeah. So what happens right after the Washington post and, and are you feeling dejected or are you thinking, uh, that's fine. I'm going to go prove them wrong. You know, I had a couple other options out there. I was talking with the Newport News Daily Press uh, about, I think it was a high school job there, and then the Fresno Bee. And the Fresno Bee, you have to, like, for, for people who aren't in the industry, the Fresno Bee has been, like, the launching pad for a bunch of really successful sports writing careers. They had, at the time, like, a couple years earlier – when Jerry Tarkanian was there, the columnist was a 24-year-old named Adrian Wojnarowski, and the beat writer was a 20-something named Andy Katz. And they've done okay for themselves, I yeah, think. Decent. Um, yeah, decent. And Eric Prisbell uh, was there as well. He was a couple years older than me, ended up working at the Washington Post after his time in Fresno. And John Branch, who's won a Pulitzer and written a couple of great books, uh, was a columnist there. And John Canzano, who's a columnist at The Oregonian, like they've had this track record of just churning out really successful sports writers. And they wanted to bring me on as kind of a catch-all feature writer. It was going to be a lot of NFL stuff, actually. So I was going to go and cover the, the Niners or the, the Raiders, whoever was at home on the weekends. And it was a great opportunity. It was California. And I know... You know, people in L.A. and San Francisco don't think Fresno's California, but for, you know, everywhere. <laughs> it's Fres east yes, of that, actually. Fres it's yes. more California than they are. <laughs> uh, and it was in this wonderful little, uh, you know, area where you could shoot out to San Francisco, L.A. or Vegas. 
and it was perfectly positioned there amid this unbelievable natural beauty of Sequoia and Sierra National Parks. Like it was a great, great place to be as a 21 year old. And then Eric Prisbell goes out and starts investigating academic fraud for Fresno State basketball and can't cover the team anymore. So I have a new job, you know, a couple months into my time there. Yeah. So you're you're kind of learning the ropes there, I would assume. You've obviously done a whole lot of work before that, but this is like your first official beat? Yeah, you know, I had covered Syracuse football and basketball, but I hadn't covered it particularly well. And to be honest, looking back on, on Fresno State basketball, I didn't cover that all that great either. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of things that I would do differently now. Just I didn't get the value of of relationships with people. And it, and it wasn't that I was, I was going out and taking shots all the time, or I wanted to, to do that, but I just didn't get to know the people who I was covering as well as I needed to. And the news element of the job really wasn't that important to me, probably because there weren't any competitors and, and people, you know, there were TV stations in the area, but they, you know, they weren't taking Fresno State basketball seriously enough to to go break news on it. And I, I mean, my biggest competition was the bark board, which was the message board for, for the Bulldogs basketball team. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit different than what you eventually got to. You end up at the Kansas City Star covering baseball in 2004, and then two years later, you're at Yahoo Sports for 13 years. Was there any trepidation in terms of moving to be, to baseball after you had covered mostly basketball and other sports? And how different was it for you to cover uh, that sport with completely different demands in terms of how often you're writing, how many games there are, et cetera? Yeah, you know, here's the thing. I kind of lucked out. I never covered a baseball beat. I never covered the Royals. Uh, really? I got hired. I was 24 and I got hired as a national baseball writer. And it was because I was cheap. And it was because I was single. And that's the, that's the God's honest truth. And, and that should not, the, listen, I understand neither of those things should be requisites for a job. But the fact that I was single, my editor at the time was a guy named Mike Fannin. And Fannin is, is somebody that people will either swear by or swear about. Because he, he could be the biggest tyrant in the world. I, and, and I, okay. That's a bit of an exaggeration. He could be the biggest tyrant in journalism at the time, though. Right. I truly believe that to be like, if you want, I'm trying to think of what the best fan and story would be. Are you going to have Wright Thompson on this podcast ever? I've been dying to, and he hasn't, he hasn't come on yet, but hopefully I can try to, you know, okay. tell him I'm not that he needs to tell, come on. I'm not going <laughs> to tell Wright's story. Because Wright's story is the best Mike Fannin story of all time. And Fannin, by the way, Fannin is the editor-in-chief of the Kansas City Star now. And he is a brilliant journalism mind, maybe the best line editor that I've ever worked with who can just sit down with you, go line by line over a story, and it's much better when he's done with it. And that is a rarity among editors. Like, that is a special editor when when someone can do that. But Fannin also, at the time, uh, his, you know, he hired young single people generally because he knew he could absolutely work them to the bone and bully them. And I don't think he does this anymore, but this is a perfect fanonism right here. I will admit I was in the wrong for the premise of where this happens. Uh, one of my friends from college 
had gotten a job in Idaho. And a bunch of us were like, hey, let's get together. Let's go meet Pete up in Idaho and make a weekend out of it. And Phantom wasn't paying me a whole lot at the time. So I'm like, hmm, what kind of story could I come up with to go to Idaho to see my friends? And it turns out the Idaho Faults Chuckers were the Royals rookie league team. So I pitched Fannin on this idea that this is where the future of the Royals is. Now, I don't think a single player from that team ended up making the big leagues. But anyway, it got my plane ticket paid for to go up and hang out with my friends for a night in Idaho. And, you know, I hung out with the team and I felt like I got some good stuff, but I had started dating this girl at the time and things were going pretty well. And I was procrastinating the story a little bit. And you have to understand, like when you're writing a long story on a newspaper deadline and you file it at like nine o'clock and they're going to press at like 1030 and you give your editors essentially 45 minutes to pound through like a (laughs) 2000 word story. That's a dick move. And my story on the Idaho Falls Chuckers was uh, filed at nine o'clock on, I believe, a Monday night. And it wasn't good. And I'm not going to say it wasn't good because I was spending too much time with this girl. But, you know, that, that probably had something to do <laughs> with it. Some may believe that calls, to be the case. Fannin calls me the next day and spends 10 breathless minutes berating me about how worthless I am, how I don't deserve this job, how I suck. Fannin was the same guy who, like my first month on the job, I wasn't doing particularly well in his eyes. And I was down in Omaha at the AAA team reporting on Zach Granke, who was still down there. And he said to the, uh, to the assistant sports editor, hey, where's Passon? And she said, uh, he's at Omaha. And Fannin goes exactly where he f-ing belongs. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. So at the end of this conversation, where Fannin, not conversation, monologue, where Fannin's telling me about how bad my story is and how I suck, he says to me, hey, you still dating that girl? And I was like, yeah, like, how's it going? And I was like, <laughs> I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, the, the human part of Fanon is coming up. Oh, no. I'm like, it's going really well. It's like, well, then I got four words of advice for you. F*** less, write more. And he hangs up the phone. Wow. <laughs> that woman, by the way, I've been married to for 13 years now. There, so there you, you go. go. Yeah, you had to see about a girl in Idaho or wherever. Yeah. Um <laughs> Wow. Okay. So yeah. So you learn a lot at the Kansas City Star. Um, yeah, you learn a lot. What to prioritize? You know, I, I, <laughs> no, no, Sarah. Like all, all joking aside, you know what I learned about there? Like I learned about the weight of expectations and the desire to meet them. Like I, yeah. I feel like the greatest thing that I've got going for me in my career is what I like to refer to as motor. I feel like I'm always going and do not stop working. I'm going to work harder than you are. And you may be more talented than me. You may be more this than me. You may be more that than me, but I'm going to work hard. I got that at the star and I got that from Mike Fannin. He may have been like a bad person to me. And we've talked about this and, and, you know, we laugh about it now. There's nobody I've worked for who I've wanted to work harder for than him and who I've wanted right. to disappoint less than him. It's weird. It's like this this psychological thing 
that I know that's wrong. I know that I should not want to work hard for somebody who treated me like shit, but I did. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. I think it's because I so deeply respected the great journalist in him that I tried to separate the two. Like he was going to try to motivate me however he did, but I knew that in the end he was going to make me better at what I really wanted to do. And that was the part that I was going to latch on to. Yeah. I mean, there's always that balance. You would love to have that from people that didn't also need the other side, but that's really tough to do. Right. It's hard to, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but something, you know, you know, sometimes listen, we're, we're all flawed people. We all have our, our issues, our bugaboos, our foibles, whatever you want to say. And his was that he treated people like crap. And, and I yeah. think that has changed in his new position where if you're running a newspaper, like everybody underneath you, you just can't in your own little fiefdom, maybe you can do that. But if you're in charge of everybody, you can't be a tyrant like that. You're not going to last and, and you're not going to have people who want to work for you. Right. You, uh, you were mentioning earlier that reporting has become re more rewarding to you than writing. And it's interesting because I actually read something. I think it was on the uh, Shirley Povich uh, website for Syracuse. And you talked about how working with Woj and Ken Rosenthal when you were at Yahoo Sports sort of changed the game. You thought you could just write stories, and then you watched those guys break news and realized in the new Internet era and the way the, the game was changing, that was an important and extremely valuable skill to have. So it feels like even since a couple years ago when you wrote that, you've now really embraced that side of things in a way that you didn't when you first had to make the change. Yeah, you kind of have to, though. Like, my ethos in life is just to try and be as happy as I possibly can. I don't deal with stress well, which which is kind of counterintuitive with this job, right? Because it, it can be extremely stressful. But, but the stress tends to manifest itself in rewarding fashions eventually. And if I didn't enjoy what I was doing, I don't know if I could do it. That's a big part of why I got into this, because it seemed like a lot of fun. You know, from afar, I used to look at, I, and I, I had such a derisive term, and I feel like, a, like an asshole for it now, but I, I would, you know, people who would just do minor league deals, stuff, I call them transaction monkeys. And I was like, I will never become a transaction monkey. And, you know, that's karma coming back and getting me because the biggest part of my job, I feel like, is free agency and trades. Like, that's the mandate. That's the reality. And while I used to look at that and say, I don't understand how that would be fulfilling or why that would be good, it's not just like the personal enjoyment of getting a scoop. There's definitely a rush there. But it's the knowledge that what it's taken to get to the point where I can get those has given me a much greater perspective on the sport that I cover and the people who are involved and the power right. brokers. And, right. and that is something that I did not used to have. And I learned this at the star and I was good at it too. I was really good at parachuting in somewhere, getting the lay of the land, getting to know you know, who the important people in the story are, getting the vital details, and within 48 hours, turning out like a good 2,000-word feature. Like, I was really good at that. I still am, I think. 
But that's way, way different than the long game that is news breaking. And it is a long game because you need to understand what is going on in the sport at any given time. You need to understand who is pulling the levers. You need to understand why those levers are being pulled. You need to understand the greater perspective on things. And and I don't mean to, to make this sound like a Machiavellian enterprise, but we're talking in Major League Baseball about tens of billions of dollars worth of organizations here. I cover 30 corporations. And within those corporations, you have CEOs, uh, you have people who are involved on the business side, on the baseball operations side. Within the baseball operations side, you have people who are involved in scouting, people who are involved in player development, uh, people who are involved in both amateur and professional. You have uh, the people who are playing on the field. You have the managers and coaches. You have low-level interns. You have analytics people. You have this great, vast universe of human beings with different motivations and different ways of getting there, all trying to do the same thing, which is end the season with a big, fat gold ring studded with diamonds on their fingers. How they go about doing that is endlessly fascinating to me, and that's what I want to do. I want a greater insight into that, and I want to illustrate that, not just through the moves that they're making, but show how these moves, how these transactions fit in that greater universe. Yeah, I mean, it is – it's funny. I never really think of it as basically covering, you know, all those corporations and all the – you know, machinations within them, but that's 100% what it is. And I can see now why that would be as compelling or even more compelling than telling individual stories or stories that are sort of disparate from each other. Because in this case, Mm -hmm. you do need to have so much institutional knowledge to tie them all together, to get you to the right person at the right time, to break the story and to tell it right and to really help other people understand it. Um, It's a skill, it's a gift. And and that's why I think so many of us look at people like Woj and just our minds are blown, not just because of the work, but because it facilitates and allows the, you know, gas bags like us to talk about things, to give us content, to give us context for what we talk about as well. And without those people doing that job well and telling those stories from inside, we just don't have the same ways of talking about the athletes and the teams that we cover. It's, it's, it's so important. Yeah. And trust me, I was fully on board with being a gas bag. Like, that's where I figured I was going. I think you still are sometimes. So, you know, keep that in your back pocket. I do have a (laughs) good bit of gas baggery and bloviation in me. Like, that is, I feel like I can move into the gas bag world when I want to. But it's like, in the news breaking world, it's like I'm in in my suit with, like, the pocket square and the tie clip. But when I go into the gas bag world, it's like right now I'm sitting in a T-shirt and shorts. And I feel like I could, I could transition between those uniforms quite adeptly. <laughs> uh, well, since you brought up gas baggery and uh, other common terms that we hear bloviating and such on the Levitard show, we have to get to what I mentioned earlier, which is following your work at Yahoo, perhaps not super closely, but enough to know when you were telling stories and breaking news and doing things that were relevant to the baseball world. 
I don't know that I picked up on so much of your personality. And then you got to ESPN and you start doing more radio shows coming on, you know, Spain and Fitz and now Spain and Company going on Levitard show and sort of revealing that you can go with the flow much more so than just telling people what's going on in baseball. And that resulted in your very first appearance with Levitard, sort of inexplicably, you walk into a typical part of their show, which is people calling in and doing very bad Sean Connery's. You know, you're game enough to to do your very own very bad Sean Connery, but you follow mm-hmm. up by saying, you know, I do some impressions better. So, you know, without any, very organically, without being prepared, your very first appearance on Levitard becomes this massive debut of this epic impression and I know that you like to save it for the big folks. You like, oh, you tell me I, I can't cheapen the impression by doing it on Spain and Company. You give it to the Dan Patricks and the Dan Levitards of the world. But I'm just going to have to go clip some off from another show and play it here and give me extra work to do if you don't just do it yourself right now. Dora, this podcast is already way too long. <laughs> Finally, uh... Emma coming in. Come on, Sarah. You're not better. Oh, God, I don't know better, and I am not better than this. This is my favorite. Um, How did you discover that you could do this? Here's the the thing. Like, it was really funny. And if you go back and listen to that first time that I was on, I was actually, like, kind of nervous in the moment. Not nervous to, like, do the voice, but nervous after I'd done the voice because I realized <laughs> instantaneously that I had opened up a Pandora's box. And I'm talking, and I'm, uh, like, I'm talking my problems out loud. I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be the serious newsbreaker guy. What am I doing here? And you could hear Stugatz in the background going, no, no, keep <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm like, John, you dick. Like, your instant gratification is more important than, like, what people in ESPN and outside of ESPN are going to think of me? And I think the answer, if I asked him that question, would be absolutely yes. Yeah, that's just you getting to know Stu Gatz immediately to the deepest part of his soul. Yes, his instant (laughs) gratification is far more important than your credibility within the industry that you've been in for most of your life. Yeah. 100%. Here's the thing. The the brilliance of Dan and Stu and that whole show and the shipping, everybody there is that they are the zeitgeistiest people in sports media. Like they know what's going to play. They know what's going to work. And Dan was saying, no, no, people are going to love you for this. (laughs) And I had no idea how right he was. Because the funny thing is, the only time I ever busted out Elmo really before that was for my children. And it was, it was the truly inappropriate Elmo, like yeah. the Elmo who would like curse and say <laughs> just all sorts of wildly, in, like, I mean, gnarly things. I would do it at parties too. I would be like very inappropriate Elmo at parties as well. But I, uh, I never, I never thought that it was going to be a thing. And Good Lord Almighty, is it a thing? Yeah. I mean, you're right, though. I mean, there is that goofiness and silliness and just being yourself on that show that so many people end up becoming better liked and better known for it because you don't have to have the sort of stiffness of the the regular stuff that we're on most of the time. Well, and that's the thing. I had been on that show in the past. Oh, I thought that was your first time. I had been... 
No, it was my first time as an ESPN employee. Uh, but I'd okay. been on a, I'd been on a couple times previously when I'd written columns eviscerating the former Miami Marlins ownership for the you know just the absolute awful stadium deal that they did. And Dan, of course, is friends with David Sampson, who I ripped all the time. So you know, credit to Dan; he would have me on ripping his friends. Like that, that's the thing. There are no sacred <laughs> cows on that show, yeah, and that's one no of the rules. reasons that I love it. Like they will go after their family, and and you just have to know that if you're in that universe, that you're going to get shot at sometimes. Oh yeah, and and there are going to be flesh wounds. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes worse, depending on who you are. Just don't go on the Reddit <laughs> if you if you don't want to know uh, how much worse it can get than a flesh wound. Um, Elmo was right. This podcast is too long, but it's been super fun, and clearly you're going to have to come back because there's a million things I didn't get to, but. Since this is your first time, I can't let you go before you do the thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody answers and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Okay, computer by Radiohead. Ooh, that was quick. Nice work. Number two, what habit or quality do you think you have that's contributed most to your success? Drive. Yeah, the motor that you mentioned. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ask me in 10 years when I see how my kids turn out. <laughs> that, that's, that seems to point to the fact that you might be concerned. I No, I, I am concerned. I'm very <laughs> concerned. No, no, no. I'm very concerned because I feel like the most important thing a parent can do in life is be a good parent. And I feel like I'm a good parent, but... I just don't know the answer to that until my kids are older and are mature enough to tell me whether I was a good parent or not. Okay. Well, I, if we have Google Calendar still in 10 years, I'll put it on the date 10 years from now. I'll check back <laughs> but in my with biggest, you. My biggest failure in life to this point, the long story, and since this is quick, I, I wrote a column about it. It was from the Olympics. Back when I was in college, I took two trips to Scotland uh, as part of this university-sponsored trip and was supposed to write three chapters in a book and flaked on it when school was done and never did it. I have nightmares about it to this day where I will wake up. You know how you have nightmares sometimes about how you didn't do homework or you yeah, have a for test sure. that you didn't? Yeah, that's, that's my recurring nightmare. And I still feel miserable about it. Because that you were sent there to do the work, then you didn't do the work? Correct. I did not do the work. I went to Fresno. I made a value judgment where I felt like my time had to be spent on the job and it was a really selfish thing to do. And I regret it because I should have found the time because if you commit to something, you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that for sure. Uh, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Not for a long time though. I try to avoid violence. Usually on the uh, receiving or giving end. Oh, I mean, all kinds of people out there want to punch me in the face. Um, <laughs> um, all right. So moving on, you have been in plenty of fist fights, uh, but not recently. That's good. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Donald Trump. Hmm. Would you like to accomplish something or just want to see what it would be like to be? In yeah, charge? I just I just honestly, I just like one day of sanity. <laughs> I'm down for that. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
I mean, this is like an all-time story, and it's really long. Do you have time for it? It better be worth it. It better not be like that time Marty Smith told a long story on, on a Levitard show, and it was the worst story we've ever heard. You know what? I have a different embarrassing story. This is a pretty good one. Back in college, the year after I graduated, it was the Battle for the Bottles party. And I met a girl. And we went into the room of my friend Eli Saslow. And Eli Saslow has gone on to become one of the great reporters of his generation. Eli's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's a brilliant guy. Just the absolute best. Eli also did not like the idea of a couple of randos going into his room from this party. And so the door was locked and Eli knocks on the door and I yell at him. I'm like, get away. And he knocks on the door and I'm like, get the F away. And he kicks open the door and we've got two naked human beings right there. Eli's like passing my friend Chico Harlan, who also works at the Washington Post, jumps in with a video camera right there because he thought he was going to capture people. Oh, this is not the most embarrassing part. Eli's like, Passon, what are you doing? I'm like, get out of here. So I run and I push them away. I close the door. At the opposite end of the hallway, remember I said earlier, Greg Bishop is always the one who's there to laugh at me? (laughs) At the opposite end of the hallway, Greg Bishop with 25 people is organizing a slow clap for when this poor girl and I emerge out of this room and our walk of shame down this long, dark hallway. And as we are walking down the hallway into the view of Chico Harlan's camcorder, Greg Bishop has arranged. Oh, wow. That was pretty embarrassing. That sounds pretty embarrassing. More so for her than you, though. You, um, oh, you were way just, more you know, for her. That l- lying girl. naked in the and bed laughing. <laughs> I, I mean, Eli was so livid. It, I'll, I'll never forget that night. He was so angry. He was out on the porch as I was walking the girl back to her hotel, screaming at me, Bruce before home! Oh, my God. Just yelling it again and again. College, like... You know what? I, I take it back. Ask me in 15 years what my greatest failure <laughs> is. Because in 10 go. years, my, my eldest is – both of my sons are going to be like right college age. And boys are idiots in college. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, I look forward to the other embarrassing story the next time. Oh, I will tell I you will that in person, forget. and it will, will be so forget. worth it. <laughs> uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Three things. One, I feel like I'm okay at this already, but I want to be more present for my family. That's a difficult thing to do, balancing this job. Number two, I absolutely need to get more sleep. I function on four to five hours of sleep, and I know that's not healthy, and I know that's not good for me. And number three, I, I want to get better at remembering things because I completely forgot what the other thing was. So, <laughs> Number clearly, three, uh, clearly you want to be more the, concise? The family, it, I, <laughs> yeah, being <laughs> concise would probably help for your podcast purposes. Um, number eight, if you could be commish of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? How long would this rule be in place? Just for uh, forever, I guess. Oh, that's easy. Just be nice to one another. 
That's the one I've been getting a lot recently, which I think tells you a lot about people's state of mind in the current uh, current yeah, situation. Yeah, you know what? Though I, don't you feel don't you feel like that's a universal one though? Don't I you agree. Feel like I mean, it, I agree, but I think it's more is, top is, of mind for sure. Yeah, maybe so. I feel like that's all. Here's the thing: whatever our political climate may be, I feel like bad people always existed, and being nice to one another has always been. I like, agree, but I think the internet. And social media and all the aspects yeah, outside yeah, of even yeah, just you politics. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're totally is what right. What makes about it that. come to the forefront? Yeah, it's a, na- it's a, it's a, it's a na- like Twitter's a nasty place. Right. Twitter it's is much a harder to be place. cruel Twitter- to people in person. I'm going on one final tangent because uh, <laughs> this is this is a really really good one, and I want to show you what the good of Twitter can be. And I know that there's no way your DMs are open, right? Uh no, 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 not a chance. Right, and I I feel like. Being a woman in sports and having open DMs is like the greatest, you know, recipe for disaster possible. Yes. And and if you if ever people want to like wonder about male privilege, this is male privilege. I can keep my DMs open and not get right. assaulted and told how stupid I am on a daily basis. And I bring up my DMs because a high school age kid slid into him a few days ago, and he said, "Hey, you went to high school with somebody I know." And I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, he's like, and yeah, he was telling me the story about the last day of high school. And the last day of high school, it lives on in Solon lore. And I don't know that people realize that I was the person who did this. So I just like to claim this publicly at this point. <laughs> But we had this we had this tradition of senior pranks and senior pranks had gotten kind of stale, you know, like letting chickens in the school go run wild, you know, just lame stuff like that. One of my friends had an idea. He's like, uh, he's like, what if we brought a stripper to school? Oh, no. And I was like, what indeed? And so during journalism class, uh, we had access to a phone. I started calling around to some local establishments, seeing if any of them uh, would be willing to send a lady to our school. And the idea was that it was our principal's first year. And uh, we had this area that the senior sat in called the senior commons, and we were going to have the nerds invite the principal to sit in the commons for the last day of school. And the woman was going to walk up to him and say, excuse me, Mr. Steyer, I'm looking for the anatomy room. And he would say, well, we don't have an anatomy room. And she would say, well, I'm the anatomy sub. And he would say, well, we don't have an anatomy class. And she'd say, now you do. And we would hit the music and she would take her clothes off. <laughs> this is the, the harebrained oh, idea of 17-year-olds. And you wanted to still graduate, presumably? Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, oh, oh, boy. So long before GoFundMe, there was something called actual crowdsourcing. And I walked around to every kid in the senior class and asked for a donation to cover this because I found a place that indeed would send a woman (laughs) to a high school for a job for a certain price. And that price was $200. So I gathered up $200 scraping by. The problem when you ask probably 125 or 150 high school kids if they'll chip into the stripper fund is they're going to tell one person and that one person is going to tell somebody else. And by the time sixth period comes along and everybody is at lunch, not only do all the students know that the stripper is coming to school, but all the teachers know that the stripper is coming to school too. So you have like this barricade 
around the senior commons of teachers. Thankfully, we think fast. We try to create a diversion and have a couple of kids fake a fight. So a couple of kids are faking a fight, and all the teachers go to break up that fight. And as the teachers are breaking up that fight, I sneak the stripper in through the back of the school and walk her up to the principal. And instantaneously, he knows what's going on, grabs her by the arm, and takes her away. Now, all of this, Sarah Spain, has been captured on camcorder by a classmate named Brian Rose who uploaded it to YouTube. So this is on the Internet. There is a semi-riot that ensues with a bunch of suburban white kids in Solon, Ohio, chasing after the principal who's got the stripper who's trying to drag her through the gym and literally take the stripper to the principal's office. People are going crazy at this point. It gets even crazier. This part's not on video, but when two cop cars pull up. And when the cop cars pull up, I'm like, oh, Jesus, Jeff. So I have this list of all the people just in case she didn't show up who I was going to have to pay back and how much they paid in. I go to the bathroom and I burn the list. I cut the next period and go to my final period. And we're supposed to pick up our cap and gown that day. And I don't think at that point word had gotten back to anyone in the administration that I was the brains behind this. So I get my cap and gown and I swear to God, I've never run faster than I did to my Honda Civic back in high school to get out of there just before they found out. Go to graduation. I'm walking across stage. You shake the class president's hand. You shake the vice principal's hand. As I shake the principal's hand, he leans in and he says, hey, I owe you one. Whoa. How about that? Like I owe you one in a bad way? Like something bad's coming to you or he owes you? No, like I'm going to take you once you're 21. I'm going to take you to a strip club. Oh, wow. Yes. That is a twist I was not expecting. Yes. So he was, like, apologizing to you for ruining your prank. Yes. He was totally cool with it. Like, smile on his face. I, I mean, I, I could not believe that. Because he wasn't, like, a super buttoned-up guy. But yeah, but not, that's, you was, still don't expect that. Yeah. He was a, he was a principal. Oh. So, yes, I will give a great amount of credit to my mom. Because I feel like in my kids' lives, one thing I do too much is try to, like, exert control and not let them screw up. My mom knew exactly what I was doing. She saw the fat wad of cash on the table that morning. And she's like, you really want to do this? I was like, yeah, why not? She's like, you really think it's a good idea? I was like, no, probably not, but I'm still going to do it. And she's like, okay. And, yeah. and she, like, parents who let their she kids let make you learn mistakes, your lessons. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It <laughs> yeah, was, but I, you're also I, lucky because all of the mistakes you've made that you've told us on the pod, at least, you have gotten a tiny slap on the wrist. Oh, I listen. Earlier I mean, you could have easily not lived, graduated. I you could have gotten lived arrested. A really charmed life, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, your kids it are going to make totally the same true. mistakes, and then it's going to be on their permanent record, and they're not going to be able to get a job. And you're going to be like, "Whoops, that didn't end the way <laughs> well, I thought." I, listen, this also all came before like like cell phone cameras. Yeah, yeah, for like, sure. The first time I got drunk, I ended up like passing out and getting a dick drawn on my face. And there oh, are yeah. photos of That'll that. Happen. They were yep. just they were just photos and I got the negatives and got the photos and they don't exist anymore. As far as you know. All right, we gotta finish this out. <laughs> Number Sorry. nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? Uh the night that we took my older son home from the hospital, he wouldn't stop crying mm. and 
I sat there thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. How am I possibly <laughs> going to do this? Yeah, that's the that, most. That it, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of scared, but that is unquestionably the most scared I've ever been. And finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Kind. Good. Family. Hmm. Those are pretty good ones. And finally, the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who would be a good interview? Other than, of course, Wright Thompson. Does it have to be a media person, a sports person? No, anyone in the world. Like, what, are you, what are you looking for? Anyone, anyone in the world. In the That's world. interesting. I'm trying to think who fascinates me. I'm fascinated by chefs. I love cooking. And, like, the mind of a chef is really interesting to me. So I've never met him. I don't know him. Do you know who Grant Ackett is? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, from Alinea. I would, yeah. I, he's, that would be a really good one. Grant Ackett's literally, like, his entire, like, livelihood is based on his ability to taste, and he had cancer and lost his ability to taste. Like, what's it like being a chef who can't taste is like, what's it like being a writer who lost his words? And that, to me, is like, it's such a very interesting place to start with somebody's life. So I, yeah, I, I mean, think his that taste be... has come back slowly. So it was, a, but right. there was a moment in time where that thing right. that was his life was taken because of cancer. Yeah. Um, that would be a great one. He's tough to get to, but uh, I will consider it a goal. Uh, and I will also consider it a goal to, uh, get people to listen to this entire podcast all the way through. We'll see if it happens. Oh, I, I <laughs> do you think that's actually going to happen? Like good, I do. good luck, Spain. I think you're very entertaining and I appreciate you coming on the pod. I appreciate you letting me tell silly stories. That's what she said. Be sure to check out another great ESPN podcast, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. Season one is available now. Season two will debut on October 9th. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, handkerchiefs. Like, what? Who thought of this? It's basically a tissue of fabric that you blow all of your snot into, fold up, blow more snot into, and then put back in your pocket, presumably to do that again? Why? Even back in the day when handkerchiefs were in favor, there had to presumably be some sort of disposable paper-type product that would have worked better. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this handkerchief, and they're supposed to somehow be like, gentlemanly to pull one out and offer to someone how is one to know that this handkerchief hadn't previously been used by you or someone else how are you to remember whether it was one that you cleaned and put back in do you have several handkerchiefs is one the clean one that you keep wherever you access it at any moment's notice when a a, a woman or person in distress needs it do you have several that once they're dirty you put them somewhere else i'm very confused about this other than the fact that i'm certain that they're gross and we should just use disposable paper products all right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Handkerchiefs, gross, but pocket squares, cool. As long as it's just for looks and you don't blow your nose into it. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave your dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on a future episode. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 